Coming up, what lies ahead for the second half of the NBA season? A week away from breaking down the brackets with the NCAA tournament, nine days away from the NFL season opening for business, the Capitals' Tom Wilson's seven-game hit and how he can be stopped, and celebrating the golden anniversary of quite possibly the biggest sporting event ever to take place. I'll have all that and then some, but first, this message. Hey everybody, Jay Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you to all, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, the J-Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to them. Of course, this pod is on all platforms, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to, so your participation is vital to increase the visibility of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. In turn, to generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so that I could flip that to you guys and gals, to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, and credible sports talk unlike any other for everyone to listen to and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to the website for more information about me, the pod, archive shows at www.jreels.com. I appreciate you all. I thank you very much for listening, trusting, and believing in me. So with that said, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Wishing all is well in your world, glad you stopped by, so let me bring you up to speed on all that's happening in the sports universe as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard, and for those who have been banging with me for now 183 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It's a Monday, March the 8th, in the year of our Lord 2021, the J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect here on this podcast is as follows. All's been quiet, as expected on the Diamond in Major League Baseball, but there are a couple of things that I want to dive into, in particular... Why Lou Gehrig Day is something to celebrate come June 2nd and beyond. I know that came as a bit of a surprise. I never knew that Major League Baseball was in the works of having a Lou Gehrig Day, but I'll get into that. And what does this mean for other greats of the past, whether your name is Babe Ruth or Ted Williams? I'll break that all down later in the podcast. There was a suspension in the NHL over the past week where the Washington Capitals, Tom Wilson, gets a seven-game suspension for a hit on Boston Bruin defenseman Brandon Carlo. Was it too much? Was the league trying to send the message? To me, the true and only way to stop plays like this from happening, you're going to get my two cents and then some later on as we'll go through the ice and see what's happening with the latest and greatest in the NHL. 
We're nine days away from the league opening business in the National Football League. There have been a few transactions over the past week, including J.J. Watt signing with the Arizona Cardinals, which came to a little bit of surprise with some people. There are rumors about him maybe going to Cleveland or Kansas City, but it's the desert where he ends up. So we'll touch on that later on. Of course, the madness of March will start to pick up. Some serious steam as conference championship week is here. Six days away from Selection Sunday. Who will make it into the tournament? We'll discuss all that later on. As well as the 50th anniversary, the golden anniversary of quite arguably the greatest sporting event that has ever taken place on American soil. And that was the Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier bout, Madison Square Garden, 50 years ago today, which I'll touch on. Now, mind you, I was only a year, about to become two years old, but the significance and the impact of that fight and what it had, and here it is 50 years later. So I'll get into all that. Of course, my hero and zero of the week. But on the heels of last night's 170 to 150 game, the disaster in Atlanta, which, as expected, you were going to get this high scoring, matador defense, high flying, half court three point shot type game. Now, I did see the highlights. I did not watch one second of it. If they played the game in my living room, I would have been in the bedroom half asleep. And that's just how the NBA All Star game has come to be known here over the last, I would say, a couple of decades. And you could argue with me, Jay Reels, what about last year? The game was competitive in the fourth quarter. Players were starting to play defense. They took it seriously. Well, why can't they do that for four straight quarters? I'm not trying to say they got to die for loose balls. I'm not trying to say that they got to stay in the lane and try to draw a charge from LeBron James or Giannis Antetokounmpo, who was your MVP of the game last night, as he went 16 for 16 from the field, was perfect. But I just cannot, whether it's, Two minutes or even two and a half hours, however long the game has been played, I cannot sit there and watch this type of exhibition. It doesn't do anything for me. And I didn't watch anything in regards to the slam dunk competition, who I know the kid Anthony Simons from Toronto won the three-point contest where I believe Steph Curry got the last ball in order for him to win the tournament, or the contest, I should say, when it comes to three-point shooting. And the whole pomp and circumstance of All-Star Weekend, it doesn't thrill me like it once did. I just have to be honest with you. So for those out there who are saying, but Jay Reels, there was nothing on yesterday. I know the college basketball was pretty much done around 7 o'clock or somewhere around that time. And the NHL can't really wrap your arms around. Baseball, who the hell's getting into exhibition spring training games? I get all that. But still, I'm not going to invest any measure of time to watch these guys just go up and down the court with alley-oops, dunks, three-point shots from Norcross, Georgia. And it just doesn't tickle my fancy, people. What can I tell you? If that's what you're into, if you enjoy all of the high-flying circus act of what the All-Star game has to offer, then please be my guest. If you could watch 20 hours of that, please go right ahead. Don't let me stop you. But if it's me here, there's no way I'm even entertaining a second of that. And it's nothing against the players. It's nothing against everything that's going on in the country with coronavirus, how they shouldn't have played, how this game could have been postponed till next year. We all know at the end of the day, it was all about money. That's fine, but I'll find something else better to do. And yes, I only broadcast it now to you guys because this just happened. And with the NBA getting ready to start off the second half and 
pretty much picking up my theme for where I'm going to go here with the NBA segment. I had to start off with that, but if you're going to ask me to break down analysis of the game, my thoughts about everything that took place last night, you're going to have to go somewhere else to watch that. And I'm sure pretty much as we speak on first take, Stephen A. and Max Kellerman are probably breaking down what happened in the fourth quarter of this game where by Friday, you're not going to remember who won the game or if Giannis was the MVP or somebody else was. That's how insignificant it is to me. But now as we're getting ready to start the quote-unquote second half, which we'll pick up on Wednesday with a couple of really lame games, I hate to say it, Washington at Memphis and then San Antonio at Dallas, which I guess that's not too bad, but you know, you're not going to have the full slate of games that you will on Thursday. And my early apologies, the construction's going on outside, so if you hear some banging, if you hear some drilling, what can I tell you? I don't have a studio, it's not as if I have soundproof walls here, so once again, my apologies if you hear anything going on outside. It's not a war, it's not an uprising in the neighborhood, it's just construction out there and scaffolding. Unfortunately, that's just how it goes for today. Now, the two things I want to get to before we get into the second half and kind of break down everything that's going on. The first thing I want to talk about is the officiating in these games. And I know that was a big theme Wednesday night where Utah was in Philadelphia where Donovan Mitchell got tossed in the last minute in overtime. So this wasn't in the second quarter or somewhere in the middle of the game where maybe Utah was getting blown out and they were checked out getting ready for the All-Star break. This was literally in the last minute of the game where he got hit with technicals on two separate plays during this final minute. And to Mitchell's disgust and chagrin in the postgame, he pretty much put it all out there to say that it's a joke. They get no respect. These calls are nonsense. Even Rudy Gobert came out and said that Mike Conley, whose jersey's getting pulled as he's going up and down the court, but on the other side, there are phantom calls left and right. Both of those guys got fined, which is automatic, as you know right off the bat. I know a lot of the talk when we go into the second half is going to be, are the Jazz worthy of being in contention, or at least to be mentioned, with the Clippers, Lakers in particular? I don't know if you want to throw the Nuggets in there. But to be one of the teams that will rise out of the West and represent that conference in an NBA final. And we've talked about this, it seems like ad nauseum over the last month and change. I still need to see more. Championships aren't won halfway through a season. Granted, they've played well. Give credit to the coach, Quinn Snyder, who is probably, and not that this means anything at the end of the day, but as far as being coach of the year, I know there's some sections especially here in New York that think that coach Tibbs Tom Thibodeau the coach of the Knickerbockers will be the guy that will win the award but that's not what it's about right this second it's about whether or not the Jazz are going to make some hay in a conference that is dominated by the LA teams and in particular the Lakers now we know about the situation with Anthony Davis you got to wait for him to come back because without him going into the playoffs that's not to say the Lakers can't make it to the finals Because this team, even without Davis, is better than last year's team that made it to the finals and won it with Davis. But it's going to be tough sledding and too much on LeBron's shoulders to kind of will this team not only back to an NBA final, but repeating as champs. So Utah right now, obviously they're going to concentrate on themselves. 
They're going to try to block out all the outside noise dating back to the comments or the question that was posed by Shaquille O'Neal in the inside the NBA postgame where he says, hey, you're going to have to raise your level although you've been playing well and Shaq did say he's a big fan of his, etc. But that's going to be one of the things that the league is going to see on whether or not the Jazz is going to be for real. But now, as I digress and went off on a little bit of a tangent, the officiating you got to worry about here because not to say that you have to worry about officials ejecting these players early in the game. But it's twofold because what you've seen with the officiating here, just from that standpoint, and then the final two minutes of these games, they're interminable. Having to review every single possession, it seems, it prolongs the game. It sucks out all the air in the building. It sucks out all the air from my sofa watching these games. And it just becomes a nuisance beyond belief. The game doesn't breathe at all. And we understand that they want to get the call right and that by having instant replay, they're able to review a lot of the, whether the ball's been tipped out of bounds or some of these foul calls or the charges or whatever. But why is it that when you watch a game and you'll witness certain plays and you'll see what's going to take place over the first three and a half, almost 46 minutes of the game, And then when it gets to the final two, it's almost as if everything is scrutinized, everything gets watched, everything gets, it just blows your mind. You can watch a fantastic game between whomever it is, and then here it comes to the final two minutes where, let's say it gets down to the wire, it's a one or two point lead, or they've been exchanging leads throughout the quarter, and then the game just stops. Because of the calls, because of the whistles, out of bounds, was it a charge? Was it's just uh, it's just too much, and the league has to do something about that because for a guy like myself, and I've been watching the game for a million years, and I get that they want to do its best to not only just put forth the best product out there, but they don't want to have that type of controversy, and we know that all the other leagues are doing that too. Obviously, the NHL has done that, especially when it comes to goals, and I think that's the most important thing because you want to make sure that the puck crosses the goal line. But with baseball, you've seen a lot with the replays and not that that staggered games the way it does with the NBA. Of course, we know what the NFL does. So the NBA is going to jump on board to make sure that the human error gets eliminated from any type of outcome when it comes to especially playoff games, but even games down the stretch where it's meaningful. And one thing that the league is going to have to look at, which they can't do this year, but they're going to have to look at in the offseason is to find a way to put the life back into the final two minutes of these games. And we know about the two-minute report and the calls that are made and a lot of the stuff that even the NBA has to admit later on, especially if it's something egregious where, oh, we apologize that we didn't look after this play or this call or we overlooked that, whatever it is. They're going to have to find a better way to come up with a system that the game is not only just watchable in the final two minutes, but at least keeps the thrill, it keeps the fan at the edge of your seat wondering what's going to happen next as opposed to sitting around for five minutes trying to get the call right. And at the end of the day, that's what we want as fans, but there has to be a much faster system, maybe even a more efficient way to get these calls right or to get the video or to get the result of the play a lot quicker just so we can enjoy the game and not have to worry about, oh, geez, here it is, the final two minutes, and now it's going to take forever to find out the outcome of this game. 
It just sucks the life out of it. So those are the things that I'm going to look at here, especially as we get to this back end of the season. And this isn't anything new, people, but I just have to bring it to light because I haven't really discussed it in the first part of the season. You know, you're just coming out of an NFL season. You're getting into NBA mode. And from what I've watched here, it's just tough to stomach. I don't know how else to put it. So that's what I open with here as we get ready to kick off the final 32, 34, 36 games of this NBA season as we get to the middle of May and then start the postseason at that time. A couple of big things coming out of the past week or even into the weekend. Blake Griffin last week did get his release from the team, bought out, exorbitant contract. He's going to get paid $29 million from the Pistons next year, if you can believe that. But he signs yesterday with the Brooklyn Nets and... I understand that there were a handful of teams you wanted to go to. I believe Miami was one of them. But for the Nets to get a, let's face it, a washed up and how much you're going to get out of him, granted he'll be reinvigorated, granted he'll have a lot of incentive and he's going to play as best as he possibly can. But we all know he's a far cry from the guy who was the high-flying, slam-dunking, Lob City player of the LA Clippers many years ago. And we all know now he's pretty much relegated to a perimeter player, which they already have in a guy like Joe Harris. But to me, if I was Sean Marks, I don't know how much he's going to bring on a defensive side, and nobody's ever confused Blake Griffin for being Scottie Pippen. But when the Nets, who have been playing very well here over the last few weeks, and are a half game back of the Sixers in the Eastern Conference, we all know that what they truly need is a guy that's going to defend, whether it's on the perimeter, whether it's especially as a rim protector, low block. That's the guy that they really need if they want to try to secure that Lawrence O'Brien trophy. Because as I've said time after time after time, when it gets to the playoffs, you can't win every game 141-136. That's not going to happen. You're going to need stops. And granted that they played better and that they've, Gotten the stops that they need to in the biggest parts of the game. But over the course of a seven-game series, not in particular the first round, maybe the second round, but as you get to the conference finals and the NBA finals, we all know that is a whole different ball of wax. So if I'm a Net fan, I'm not in love with this move. Granted, he's only going to cost $5.9 million. That's part of the exception that they have so they could sign a veteran such as Blake Griffin. But yes, I'm sure he's going to be motivated. I'm sure he's going to be ready to do whatever he can to not only earn his minutes, but to earn his stripes and play as hard on both ends of the floor as he possibly could. But is this really an upgrade? Does it add a little bit of depth? Yeah, it does, but it's Blake Griffin. It's not the same guy. Much different player now than he was four or five years ago. And he doesn't help much on the defensive side, which is what the Nets really need at this stage, not only just for this part of the rest of the season, but going into the postseason, as we all know. And then the other big news coming out of Philadelphia is the status of a one Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, who did not play in the All-Star game yesterday due to close contact with a barber. And the barber, which uh, his name was not identified, he wanted it to be withheld, had not only come down Uh, with a positive test for COVID-19, but because of the close contact that he had with these two players, who knows if they're going to have to be in quarantine for 14 days. 
Remains to be seen. I'm sure we'll probably get some sort of notice here. Maybe not throughout the course of the podcast. I'll keep my eye on that before we sign off. But at the same time, not that this is going to have any long-term effect for their season, but right out of the gate, you do have to wonder if the Nets continue their rise in the East and the Sixers come back to the pack a little bit, losing their two best players, what kind of effect is that going to have on them as they try to slog through the rest of the season? Just something to keep in mind. I know that you're going to get a haircut. Listen, I'm a guy that loves to get my haircuts every two weeks. Understood. But if they're breaking protocol in the process, and my thing is, is that if they haven't done so up until this point, like why couldn't they just wait a few days to get back to Philadelphia? Now, of course, I don't know the whole story, whether the barber was in Philly or whether the guy was traveling from Philly to Atlanta. I don't know that. And again, I know getting a haircut is important. Trust me. But at the same time, they could have been a little smarter and wiser knowing that up until this point, things were copacetic. And then now, right before the All-Star break, bam, they may have to sit out for 14 days depending on what their results are going to be from this close contact with the barber. So that's something you got to keep in mind here. If you're a Sixer fan or even a Net fan as you battle it out for supremacy there in the Eastern Conference. And we'll start there with Philadelphia and Brooklyn. Now, one thing I didn't mention last Monday on the podcast, how James Harden was about to make his return to Houston on Wednesday night, which he did, or was it on Tuesday? No, I believe it was Wednesday, where it was his first game back after the unceremonious trade from Houston to Brooklyn. And I didn't really say much about it, only because of the dynamic with fans. Now, there were some fans in the building. It wasn't a packed house, obviously, but it didn't have the same effect I know they had a video tribute for him, a minute and 40 some odd seconds. The fans that were in attendance did applaud and did show him some love. Me, on the other hand, I probably wouldn't have done that, despite the fact that he had an illustrious eight years in Houston, but we all know how it crashed and burned at the end with his behavior, and we've talked about that ad nauseum for weeks on end. But the real appalling thing is how the owner, Tillman Fertitta, shared that he was going to retire number 13, and send it up to the rafters at the Toyota Center. Now, Fertitta, who just bought the team, I believe, what, within the last year, two years tops, and for him to declare that right now, not after his career, not when the dust has settled, but to pretty much extend the olive branch with everything that transpired in the offseason, for him to say we're going to raise your number to the rafters, I don't know if that's more of an indictment on the owner, which it is because he has final say on that, Or for Harden to pretty much, now I'm not going to say get what he wishes for here, but he comes across unscathed and it's just a disgrace. How are you going to acknowledge this player who I understand was part of the fabric, not only of the organization, but the city for almost a decade, and then to throw bouquets at him to say, we're going to retire your number there, James Harden. Uh, What happened? I mean, what, what is that all about? So that's just a terrible job on Fertitta. That just goes to show he's a young owner, wants to, I guess, maybe appease the fan base to a certain extent, and also to not show any acrimony toward his embattled former player. I don't know, but to me, that's just a joke. It's kind of the same thing with Kevin Durant when he left the sign with Brooklyn and how Joe Lacob, the owner, said that they're going to retire Kevin Durant's number once he hangs it up for a career. Uh, Really? He was there three years. 
Uh, anyway, uh, they just retired too many numbers way too soon. I just, I can't take it. But I had to bring that up. But back to the stuff that's going on the court. As far as the rest of the East, we'll have to see how this is all going to shake down because the Bucks have played very well here as they've crept up a little bit more in the standings in the East. And they got off to that slow start, as we said last week. The Celtics seem to have right the ship a little bit. And let's see what Ainge is going to pull what type of rabbit out of his hat to get the Celtics back to the top or near the top of the Eastern Conference because as we've seen with this team, and granted, I get the injuries and COVID and Tatum out, all of that, understood, but this team should be a lot better than 19 and 18. And, or 19 and 17, whatever that record is. So with the trade deadline still three weeks away, or maybe less than that now, what is it, the 25th, 18 days, I'm not going to touch on any hot rumors or if a guy like Andre Drummond does become available, which would present Ainge with a possibility of signing him and they have that big giant exception, $27 million, which I know they wouldn't put in Andre Drummond's pocket, but Drummond is a guy, dangerous, high risk, high reward, but can defend and can rebound, which is two things that the Celtics need. And obviously he has size. So with him being part of their lineup, it would certainly increase their chances of maybe getting deep into the postseason when it comes May and into June. But right now, there's still plenty of time between now and then as to what not only just the Celtics, but pretty much the rest of the league and what they're going to do as far as reinforcements go. Then you have the Knicks, the Heat who have played a lot better here. Give it up for Charlotte and the job that they've done. And in Toronto, pretty much wrap up the top eight where you have the Bulls who are percentage points, just one percentage point behind the Raptors in the Eastern Conference as well as the Pacers. Pacers actually are half game behind. You want to throw in the Hawks who they fired Lord Pierce, the coach which they brought in Nate McMillan to now coach the team for now and the rest of the year. And the Hawks, a lot of people thought that they were going to be good this year. Maybe not as good as of course the aforementioned Sixers, Nets, Bucks, etc. But with them being on the outside looking in, they needed a change. So Pierce out, Nate McMillan in. And then after that, you have the Wizards who, believe it or not, when you think about, they started off, I think, 3-15 and or whatever their record was at the start of the year. And they are within two games of the final playoff spot right now. So maybe you can't count them out just yet with Westbrook and Beal to have that combination that could possibly carry them to the postseason. And then you want to talk about Cleveland or Orlando, Detroit, you can forget about that as you would think they'll be long gone as far as playoff contention goes. Now, when we go out West, we've talked about the Jazz and we'll see what they do here over the final couple months here of the season. Talked about them not getting the calls or the respect. And you got to face it. If you're Donovan Mitchell, who is a young player, who is certainly has made his mark and has overachieved in the league considering he was what 13th pick overall and what year was that 2015 I want to say off the top of my head maybe even 2016 or even later than that but he wasn't a top five pick and then you look at Gobert you want to throw in Mike Conley who finally made an all-star team granted players had to fall out of the actual starting lineup or were part of the all-star roster for them to bow down for Conley to step in but those guys aren't going to get the calls like a LeBron James, like a Luka Doncic, even a Nikola Jokic. Those are the guys that are going to get the calls. Dame Lillard, Anthony Davis, go on down the list. 
But nobody's going to look at Donovan Mitchell or Rudy Gobert as guys that you got to give the utmost respect that the minute you breathe on them, they're going to get a call. So they're going to have to earn that as they go along. And who knows, if they end up being the number one seed and they go into a postseason, are they going to get that call against the Lakers or the Clippers? Remains to be seen. And chances are they probably won't. But they must continue to play this way in order to get any type of respect, especially come postseason time. But as we all know, when you go up against those other teams in the conference who have been reputable, who have players who have played in playoff series, who have gone deep into playoff seasons, won championships, they're not going to get the same type of broad stroke as far as calls, whistles, respect than those guys do. And that's not to say that Paul George has won anything, but we know Kawhi has won in two different locations. Or even the guys in Denver. But you know, if the Suns are there, and CP3, late in the game, if somebody's going to look at him wrong, he's probably going to get a call. So, something to keep an eye on as we march on to the second half. And then you have, speaking of the Suns, they've been playing a lot better than I've ever thought or expected. Even when they brought in Chris Paul, I said to myself, are they going to be better? Absolutely. But are they going to be 24-11, and 11, winners of four straight, second in the Western Conference, a game ahead of the Lakers and the Clippers? Now, we know the situation with the Lakers with Anthony Davis. Once he comes back, they are, to me, the best team in the West. And the Clippers, you don't know what you're going to get from one day to the next. They are the biggest Dr. Jekyll, Mr. High team. You would think that they're going to be that team to probably upend the Lakers when it's all said and done, but they can't even get to a conference final and there's still plenty of basketball to be played. But give it up for the Suns. Much credit to what they've done and how Chris Paul has been a guy that I've bashed over the years. And I respect his play, his fortitude. He's a guy that is no nonsense. He's the last true traditional point guard that's out there. He's not a guy that's looking to chuck 53s or to make it all about him. He's about making his teammates better. And give it up to what he's done there in Phoenix because without him, the team's going to win 25 games. So he has shown the guys like Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton what it's like to not only be a professional in this league, but also to win. And he has done just a phenomenal job there. And like I said, I haven't been the biggest Chris Paul fan, especially when it comes to the postseason. He's had a lot of black marks in his postseason, even dating back to when he was in New Orleans. So losing game sevens, mailing it in at home to Denver when they lost by 50 in a game four where it was critical for them to win, things of that nature. But you got to give it up to the veteran here as he's just done a remarkable job with this team. What does that mean as far as them maybe getting deep into a postseason? I can't answer that. And if you're going to ask me with my life on the line, are the Suns Because they're a two-seed, are they going to continue to compete with the Lakers and Clippers in the Western Conference and fall within the top two or three in the conference as a whole? I'd say no. Because it'll be just a matter of time before the Lakers regain their strength and maybe the Clippers hit their stride. And who knows, maybe the Jazz come a little bit back to the pack and they've come into the postseason, or I should say they've come into the second half of the season, losers of two straight, We talked about the game in Philadelphia, the final minute, but it looks like it's going to be very competitive. Who would have thought the Suns would be where they're at right now? I certainly didn't see that. Then, of course, Portland, the Nuggets, Spurs have played well. 
Dallas has turned it around. So let's see if Luka and company could get themselves not only entrenched in one of the top eight seeds, but maybe move up a little bit. Because when you look at the bottom half of the Western Conference, from Portland, five through eight, Golden State is just a half game behind Dallas. Memphis is just a game behind them. Can the Pelicans make a run here in the second half to get themselves within that 7-10 to 10 range, which they probably will at the end of the day, but a lot of people would love to see the Pelicans in there with Zion, Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, if you want to throw him in there as well. So nobody pays attention to the NBA regular season as much because they just want to wait till tip-off of that opening round where you have Saturday and Sunday, the four games each day, and see where the dust settles from the NBA regular season. But right now, it looks like it's going to be very competitive, and with teams that you would not either expect to see at this point, or teams that have overachieved and have done more than what you could ever imagine here so far during this first 36-37 game stretch. And that's what you have with the association. All right, so I'll stick to the hardwood and now go to the college circuit as we're now a week away or really about 11 days away from the start of the tournament, which I'm sure the powers that be of the NCAA are getting ready to breathe the ultimate sigh of relief just to kind of get through this next week, get everybody prepared to go to Indianapolis where there'll be a bubble for all 68 teams to have this tournament kick off for the first time. Think about it in two years because we didn't have one last year. And they can only hope and pray that they could not only be able to pull off the next three and a half weeks after this coming week, but to have a successful tournament, a very competitive tournament, and then be able to have that Final Four and crown a champion. But with all that being said, we still have plenty of time between now and then. You have to wonder, is it a foregone conclusion that Gonzaga and Baylor may meet up in a national title game? And that's not a knee-jerk reaction because of what happened to Michigan over the past week having two bad losses, especially the one at home to Illinois. And give credit to Illinois. They've turned it around like no other. They had a brutal schedule here this last part of the week in the Big Ten Conference, and they have been remarkable to the point where they may actually get a one seed when it's all said and done as we start the tournament next week. But when we look at Gonzaga and Baylor, they've been by far the two best teams, the most consistent we know Gonzaga and what they've done. They're 24-0. Understood, weak conference, but you're still 24-0. You still got to play those teams that are on your schedule. And if you're undefeated to this point, so be it. But like I said last week or maybe a couple weeks ago, you wonder if Gonzaga should lose a game here before they really get started when the tournament begins. Because as we saw a few years ago with Kentucky going into the tournament undefeated and them losing in the final four to Wisconsin. It doesn't matter how well you play, what your record looks like once you get into the tournament and especially into a final four. But if you lose that game and we saw it many, many moons ago with the UNLV team when they lost to Duke the second time around in 91, it's going to be a forgotten season. You're going to be remembered more as the team that was undefeated to get to that point and then lose or not win a national title than to, let's say, lose a game this week. And then even if you lose in the tournament, it's not your first loss. It's not the one that's going to be marked in the record books for history's sake when it comes to teams that could have gone on to win a championship without having a loss under their belt. Again, if I'm Gonzaga, I'm not saying you got to throw the game. 
I'm not saying that you just have to give up. None of that. But that spotlight's going to be on them if they go through their tournament here in the conference, which chances are they're going to do because there's really nobody out there. Well, please, Pepperdine and teams like that. So if you're the biggest Gonzaga fan on the planet and you may puff your chest out right now to think that we're on our way, undefeated, we have a shot to make history, there's going to be pressure as high as the biggest mountain on this planet, Mount Everest, for them to win that title if they go into March Madness with that goose egg in the column. And then with Baylor, they've righted the ship to the point where after that three-week layoff and we understood that they had tough games coming out where they couldn't shoot the ball and they were unable to continue being undefeated, which I thought was a good thing for them because now they don't have to worry about that pressure that Gonzaga's going to have if they do not lose this week. So Baylor, who has certainly come back and seems like the Baylor of earlier this year, they had a big win against West Virginia on the road there, I believe, Tuesday, where they won in overtime. So the game was close, but it showed a little toughness, showed a little metal to have to win a game on the road against a very formidable opponent. And West Virginia, we'll talk about them in a minute because they've certainly come up the ranks, but they had a tough loss there against Oklahoma State without their best player. But for these two teams right now, it looks like they're going to be on a collision course to a national championship. And we understand March Madness, anything could happen, upsets, it's only one game, it's not a best of three, best of five. We understand all of that. But with how Michigan has, I'm not going to say fallen apart, but for as brilliant as they've played here, for them to have that loss at home to Illinois, and granted, you're going to have a blowout loss along the way, fine. You're going to have a game where it's not clicking or you're not in sync. Understood, you can have a game like that, but it was in your building. And granted, it was against the Fighting Illini, and they played very well here, as I said earlier. And not to say it's a big cause of concern, but it does make you wonder a little bit that, okay, did Michigan read a little bit too much of the press clippings there after those wins against Wisconsin and Ohio State on the road? And even though they did beat Michigan State there on Thursday, but then they lose to them yesterday to the point where now Michigan State may make it into the tournament. Granted, there are two games on the 500 in the conference, but they have three wins against, in, over the last 16 days, I might add, they have three wins against Michigan, Illinois, and Iowa. And chances are, when you have wins like that in that conference with that schedule, it's going to get you in the tournament. Now, if they lose in the first round here of the Big Ten, that may jeopardize it. And it remains to be seen. They're over 500 overall for the year. I believe they're 15. And what is their record? 15 and 11, I want to say. But 9 and 11 in the conference. So if you're Tom Izzo and company trying to make it to a 23rd consecutive NCAA tournament, you know that you're going to have to win a couple of games here. Not necessarily have to win the tournament. But by getting these regular season wins, it's certainly going to go a long way for the committee to not pick them to be a part of the final 64 or 68. And as much as I've talked about Illinois and what they've done here over the last couple of weeks and earning their spot, moving themselves up the rankings, you would think maybe even getting a one seed overall. Now, of course, we've got to wait and see how the conference tournament plays out. If they win the tournament, you know that they're going to definitely be a one seed to go along with Baylor and Gonzaga. But the team that's trending south 
is Ohio State. Man, have they hit an abutment here over the course of the last two weeks, and it was all started by that loss against Michigan, where since then they have not been impressive at all. They've lost four straight games. Chances are they're going to be out of the top 10. You could forget about them getting a one seed, even if they were, I think they were to win the tournament, but just knowing that they've had these losses here, and again, against formidable opponents. We know how competitive this Big Ten is. You got three teams that are pretty much in the, or four teams when you think about it, because you also got to throw in Michigan State just based on their reputation and pedigree. But when you have Illinois, Michigan, Ohio State, even Iowa, so that's five teams. I knew I was going along the right track there. Four teams in the top 10 and five overall, you throw in Michigan State. You have the most competitive and by far, right now, the best conference in the country in the Big Ten. There's no argument there. And then you had another couple of crazy games this weekend with the Houston Cougars winning that game against Memphis there at the buzzer. Now, granted, the game was tied, so it would have pushed the game to overtime. It wasn't as dramatic. Yes, it was a prayer of a shot. And it did set the buildings to a frenzy. The fans were in the building and teammates mobbed on the court, etc. But it wasn't as if they were down by two points and he hit this game-winning three at the end or they were down by one. And the game was tied, so it would have pushed it into overtime at worst. But give the player credit, made a big shot. Houston has played very well here. I don't know if it's going to give you visions of Five Slime Jamma of the 80s, but at least there's some hope down there in that region where you got Baylor and, Te- and Houston as well. And if you want to throw in Texas Tech, so a football state that Texas is, it's right now bleeding college basketball. So going to be very competitive to see how this all shakes down. I talked about Oklahoma State, the kid Cade Cunningham, who turned his ankle against Baylor in that loss the other day, and he didn't play in the game against West Virginia, who West Virginia has been flying high. And even though they did lose to Baylor there early in the week, but now stubbed their toe again without Cunningham in the line of Oklahoma State. But West Virginia is going to be fine. They'll probably be somewhere, I would think. They'll probably be a three seed at best in the tournament in some region. There's going to be a lot to digest a week from today. And obviously I'm all on top of it. I'll continue to monitor it as we go. We'll have the whole breakdown of the tournament next week. Thoughts, analysis, predictions, final fours, etc. So you're definitely going to want to stay tuned for that as we close out not only just the college basketball, but just everything that's happening on the hardwood at the moment. All right, now I'm going to stick to the winter sports here and transition to the NHL. And there's something that's been sticking in my craw here for quite some time. And I do want to mention by the end of this week, Most teams will be at the halfway point of the season. There's a lot of teams that have played about 26 games right now. You're still going to have teams that right now are at 23 games, so they're not going to reach their midway point of the season. But you're going to have a majority of teams get to at least 28 by this coming Sunday. So that's a one threshold at the NHL that right now they seem to be getting out of the whole COVID crisis. And you had a little bit of a scare earlier this week where Sidney Crosby... The longtime Penguin captain was in close contact with someone and maybe was thought to had come down with COVID, but that wasn't the case. So he's been back in the lineup. So a big sigh of relief there from Gary Bettman and everybody at the top on down in the National Hockey League. But the one thing that's been bothering me from quite some time, there's a player on the Washington Capitals by the name of Tom Wilson. And he's a guy that, big kid, he's been on the Caps for several years. 
6'4", tough guy. He can handle his own big boy, the whole deal. And I'm not going to berate him as far as his style of play because he is a physical player. He is a guy that likes to muck it up. He is a guy that's not afraid to take on any other player in the league. But he had this hit the other day on Brandon Carlo, which I'm going to say at best was questionable, but you could tell, one, on reputation, and two, because his hands were up high, and it looked like there was some intent there as far as this hit goes. So he gets a seven-game suspension, and the kid, Brandon Carlo, he's not a pipsqueak by any stretch. He's 6'5". He's a defenseman. Knocks him out of the game, concussion protocol, The coach of the Bruins, Bruce Cassidy, said it was predatory by Tom Wilson. And in watching the hit over and over, at first, quick speed, before slow-mo, you look at it, it's like, I don't know, I need to see that again. And when you see it again, you're like, oh, okay. And not only that, but Wilson has gained his reputation as one of the tougher guys in the league. And you can't question that. But here's the problem with a guy like Wilson. And again, it's going to sound like I'm on my soapbox, people. You know where I'm probably going to go with this if you've listened to me time after time, especially when I talk about hockey and toughness and physicality in the league. But let's face it, this is a guy that, because there are really no major peers in his league, if you want to look at tough guys or enforcers, other than maybe Ryan Reeves, and he's the first guy that's going to come to mind, because to me, I think he's the toughest guy in the league. But if this was, and I hate to say this like this, but if this was 30 years ago, he would pick his spots running people like that. He knows that he could get away with that because there isn't anybody of his ilk that's going to go after him and he's going to back down from. Now, granted, he probably wouldn't have backed down from guys of yesteryear, but I'll tell you one thing. If this was the league in the late 80s, early 90s, and he had to look across the ice to see Dave Brown, Bob Probert, Tony Twist, Link Gates, uh, go down, down the list. There is no way on God's green earth that he would run these players the way he does and get away with a lot of the stuff that he does if the game was enforced that way. So the bottom line is the way to curtail this, and it's never going to happen in the NHL. We know this. It's a an afterthought of afterthoughts. Is bring back the enforcer. Bring back the guy, and not just the one guy. Bring back at least two guys to put on your roster that if he's going to take run at those guys that the next shift he's going to go out there and he's just going to pummel him into submission. And if Wilson wants to turtle or if he wants to skate away, that's his business. But you're going to see how much of a phony he is because, again, there are no guys in the league that are going to challenge him. And you've seen this time after time, as much as the fighting has gone up in the league, and I like it, but you're not seeing the heavyweight bouts because there are no heavyweights to be seen. So in order to have a guy like Wilson be put in check, Or to have a guy like Wilson to not run everybody as if he's the biggest kid on the block or the biggest bully on the ice is to have that enforcer come back into play. Is to have that guy to say, oh, all right, you're going to run Brandon Carlo, who, although he's a big guy, but I couldn't even tell you if he's known to be a physical guy or to drop the gloves, whatever. All right, well, I'm going to bring somebody out there. And I get you have the kid, Trent Frederick. He's a kid. And I know... Alex Ovechkin jabbed at him in the game. I believe he got fined. I don't think he got suspended, but but a guy like Frederick is not going to, as much as he's going to stick up for his teammates, but he's not a guy that's going to scare 
a Tom Wilson into thinking like, oh, geez, now I got to watch it because this guy is not only just as big as me, but his main job is to police the ice and to enforce. And you don't have that in the league anymore. So therefore, Wilson could go around, he could stick people, he could be a little dirty, he could run at people's legs or clip people's knees, as we've seen and heard in the past with a guy like that. And he shouldn't be doing that. The guy's 6'4", he can handle his own. And it's also easy for him because he has a shield on, and I understand that's the rules of the league now, but and it's just a joke if you ask me. But all right, safety, whatever you want to call it, fine. But you want to stop the nonsense from a guy like that happening? Bring back the tough guy. Case closed. But as we all know, the NHL is never going to do that. Well, that's my solution. And sadly, the NHL will not hear me or a lot of other people for that matter. But as long as he's going to get away with stuff like that, and granted, he's got to sit out seven games. He's going to get suspended for $311,000 or whatever the salary that he's going to get docked from doing that. But you know, once he gets back out there, he's not going to change his style of play. He's going to be that same player. Some other news that's gone on, Brent Seabrook, the longtime Chicago Blackhawk defenseman, had the call of a career 15 years in the league, was a number one pick of the Blackhawks back in 2003, had a series of ailments, including a back during training camp that pretty much derailed his season, but it wasn't even that. It was the hips that he had surgery on, both of them for that matter, which was just tough for him to skate. He also had a right shoulder that he had to deal with. But those were really the keys for him bowing out after a decade and a half where he won three Stanley Cups. Lots to celebrate. I'm sure as a guy that will probably get his number sent to the rafters. So Brent Seabrook, part of that fabric of the championship team from the 2010s through the teens, retires after a long career. You also had a change in Calgary. And Calgary's been just a gigantic mess. Uh, What could you say about the Flames? When you look at their... Coaching carousel, this is now their fifth coach. And what I mean by that is Daryl Sutter, the longtime NHL player and coach who also won a Stanley Cup with the Kings back in 2014. He takes over for Jeff Ward, which is now the fifth head coach in the last seven years. And you want to talk about instability with this organization. Now, I don't know what the GM and how the ownership and what they think or feel about their organization But they need to open the windows and get some fresh air in there from top to bottom. So whomever the owner is, I couldn't even tell you if my life depended on it, but they need to get that GM out of there. They need to get somebody that's reputable. Somebody's going to go in there and put themselves back in a position to win a Stanley Cup like those late 80s teams that won in 89. And they even made a Stanley Cup back in 2004. It was many moons ago right now. But when you see what's gone on up there, And when you look at the last five seasons, they've either been in fifth place or in fourth place, except for the one year in 2018-19, where they had a huge year. They were the one seed in the Western Conference that had 107 points, but they lost in the first round to Colorado in five games. So that is your only highlight here in the last five years, where all the other years you're either in last place or next to last place. And then to make matters worse, You get another coach out in Jeff Ward. Prior to that, you had Bill Peters, if you remember him, a guy that the organization had to get rid of, or pretty much he resigned, I should say, because there were reports of racial slurs towards players in the minors going back a decade. And obviously that was just an ugly scenario where 
I'm sure it was mutual, but <clears throat> excuse me, Peters had to go with the way the climate is in the world when it comes to race. So now you get him out of there. You get Ward there for a year and a half who's done nothing. And now you have Sutter come in there and let's see what he could do. I understand you have to have talent. But just two years ago, this team was a top seed in the Western Conference. What the hell's going on up there? So I'm sure if you're fans of the Flames, who knows? Is this going to be a point where, okay, maybe somehow, some way we could get some respectability with an old-time tough guy, not in a sense of an enforcer, but you know the Sutter brothers going back to the 80s and how tough they were, the Brian Sutters of the world, Dwayne Sutters, etc. Well, Daryl Sutter, and he has his own baggage, I might add, with Daniel Carcillo and how he treated him back in 2013 and 2014. So they got that hanging over their head. So who knows if they got this higher right? Just a big mess in Calgary, but let's see what happens there with Sutter as the coach. And then you also had some sad news. Mark Pavlich, who is a one-time hero of the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team, assisted on the game-winning goal, Mike Ruzioni, against the Russians in the fame game. And it's interesting because when you think about events that happened in the 20th century when it comes to sports, this part is probably number two. Number one, we're going to get to a little bit later on. But then it was also part of the Rangers there in the early 80s, the Smurfs, because he was 5'8". You had him, Rob McClanahan, another guy who was a small guy, I believe also was on that 80 Olympic team, found dead at a facility in Minnesota. There, I believe it was on Friday, 63 years old. A lot of people think that his brain, which maybe donated the science due to CTE, for all intents and purposes, this guy was a great guy, nice guy, but over the last few years has become, his behavior has just become out of bounds where he was alleged of beating people and just being petulant, etc. So just very sad state of affairs there for one Mark Pavlich as he has left us. And uh, what could you say? You wonder with these head injuries, and we've seen it time after time, Guys like Bob Probert, Rick Rippon, Derek Bugard, most of those guys are enforcers in their days. And But here you have Pavlich, who was a smaller player, shifty player, skilled player, and let's see what the outcome is, as I believe his brain will be donated to science, and uh, we'll certainly keep our eyes on that. But when we look at the league on a whole... Pretty much everything is status quo, although the Islanders would like to see the Sabres on their schedule pretty much now for the rest of the year because they just swept them in a three-game series over the last few days. And right now, they reign supreme at the top as they've thrusted their way to the top of the Eastern Conference. Carolina's played well, and they've been nipping at the Lightning's heels in the Central. And as we talked about it last week, between Tampa, Carolina, and Florida, those three teams are pretty much at a logjam at the top of that division. And pretty much the same for the East. I know the Islanders currently have a two-point advantage over Washington, but remember, they played a lot of games in their division. So just think about it. Capitals have a game in hand. Bruins have three games in hand. Flyers have three games in hand. Penguins just a game in hand, but the Islanders have played the Penguins a ton of times. I believe they have either one or two more games left with them throughout the rest of the year. Vegas has played well as they won six in a row. And Toronto, although with a two-game losing streak, have the North pretty much in hand, a seven-point lead over the Winnipeg Jets. And unlike the NBA, I did say this last week with the NHL as far as these teams jockeying for position. And again, we haven't even gotten to the halfway point of the season. 
But you would only hope that the races for these top four in each division in the NHL will be just as competitive as the NBA is, as I mentioned earlier, with all the other teams that are just hanging around. They're in the mix, separated by a half game, a game, game and a half or so. The NHL is hoping for the same thing. Because as the precious few that follow the NBA season on a day-to-day basis, imagine what it's like for the NHL. As I said last week, who's watching? So they can only hope, and by they, I'm talking about Gary Bettman and company, could only hope that the second half will pick up and that there'll be a lot of interest and there'll be some races to see who will secure those top four positions in each of those conferences or each of those divisions, I should say, and then battle it out come May, June, and into July. So that's what we have there with the NHL. Let me turn my attention to baseball. There isn't really much to report here. And as expected, you've had now, what, eight or nine days into an exhibition baseball season where you're not going to get crazy about. And yes, it's easy to talk about how Shohei Otani's done so far. He had his first start the other day, which he struck out five of ten batters, but at the same time, he walked three and gave up two hits in the process. So I got it backwards, I believe. He walked two, gave up three hits. So I don't know if you want to say it was stellar. He didn't go through two innings. He was on a pitch count. He threw 41 pitches. I believe the pitch count was 40. But yes, his stuff is electric. He's striking out people, but he has been a little wild and he's given up some hits here. So you could take that for what it's worth. I know Trevor Bauer is getting a lot of pub. What a shock. For pitching with one eye closed the other day to the Padres in a perfect inning of work. He said that it's a training method that he uses to make him uncomfortable. My thing is, where was this when he was with Cleveland and Cincinnati? And I understand that he's on the best team, the defending champs. No one will care if this was in Northeast or Southwest Ohio. But this is something that would get publication in some circles, wouldn't it? To have a pitcher just go up there, there would have been some footage or video of him pitching to somebody where he has one eye closed. So all of a sudden, this is a revelation that, wow, Trevor Bauer is now pitching with one eye closed. And then he has to follow it up in the postgame by saying, well, if they can't score for me with one eye open, it's going to be difficult to score for me with two eyes open. So I don't know if he's stirring a the pot there. I don't know if he's just trying to get under the Padres' skin a little bit by making that comment. Because, right, oh, I had one eye open, and here I am going through a perfect inning. So imagine with both eyes. All right. But that's why I'm glad that he didn't sign with the Mets because you would have had the same nonsense if he was in a Met uniform that you're getting with a Dodge uniform. So that's what we have with Bauer. And then you have, speaking of pitchers, I know the Astros have been going through it with COVID. And overall, it hasn't been too bad. Before I get to what's happening with the Indians, with eight pitchers on their roster in COVID protocol, the Astros signed Jake Odorizzi to a two-year deal. Odorizzi, who's a Solid pitcher, but is it going to be anybody that's going to scare lineups day in and day out? Absolutely not. And then you also have the situation in Cleveland where, remember last year, where Mike Clevenger and also Zach Plesak got involved where they didn't report their whereabouts, especially in Chicago on a road trip where they were going to restaurants and hanging out, bars, and going on flights without even telling him that, uh, hey, I did happen to go out a night on the town in Chicago one night, possibly infecting other players on the team, which didn't come to pass. But 
Now you have Franmil Reyes and Jose Ramirez, where Reyes, after a game the other day, went to get a haircut. There goes the barber again. And then afterwards, met with Ramirez at a restaurant to have dinner, which obviously violates the Major League guidelines when it comes to COVID. So I don't know what these guys are thinking. I guess maybe they're in Arizona. And as you've seen time and time again, in certain parts of the country where wearing masks Right now, they're just pretty much throwing them in the garbage or they're burning them in garbage cans. And with Arizona being one of those places, I'm sure they look around and they see people going into restaurants without masks and it's full to the brim and they feel like, hey, I want to get something to eat. I want to go out. I just don't want to go back to my room. I'm going to go in there. And even if they were going in to just get takeout, still a no-no, should have known better. But that's what you have with those guys. And then a couple of quickies. Jackie Bradley Jr., two-year deal, signs with the Brewers. So let's see if he's going to be a part of that outfield. I guess he's going to play left field. I don't know what's up with Ryan Braun. We know that Yelich is going to be part of that outfield as well as Lorenzo Cain. I don't know what's happening with Cain's scenario. I know he did not play last year because of coronavirus. He stepped out for 2020. Who knows what that means this year? Is Bradley just a reinforcement? Who knows? But... He signed with them for a couple of years. You also had Joe Altabelli, manager of the 83 Oriole team, died at the age of 88 the other day. Thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to his family. The Mickey Calloway situation seems to be getting stickier and stickier to the point where now Cleveland knew about these complaints and I mentioned them last week as far as my zero of the week goes. But you had a scenario where the husband of the woman that was involved with Callaway, mentioned it not only to management, but swept it under the rug. And then even when Callaway was manager of the Mets in his first year, 2018, he broached it to their organization as well. I'm surprised he still has a job. He's suspended right now with the Angels. And I know he's tight with Joe Madden. Uh, Listen, who knows what else is going to come out from this. He was the Angel pitching coach last year. If you're Artie Marino and company, you got to cut bait. Because God forbid he has a story with somebody out in California or just an ugly story that's unfolding here. So if you're Mickey Calloway, and in particular the Anaheim Angels, you just got to let him go. It's a PR nightmare. And then also you had Aaron Boone, who recently had surgery because he had to have a pacemaker inserted for his heart as he was feeling lightheaded lethargic and this was pretty much going on during the offseason but with his energy levels being low and checking himself into a hospital realizing that he had to get this installed he's actually back in the dugout feeling great good for him didn't realize that he had open heart surgery in 2009 I for whatever reason I just forgot about that or didn't even recall that but Boone who let's face it a lot of pressure on him to win this year three years in pinstripes No World Series appearances, obviously no championships. So listen, let's see how Boone fares as he gets into this year. Just glad that his health is doing a lot better and that the Yankees will look to have a big season with him being there for his fourth year now, which it seemed like five minutes ago he was named manager of the team. And speaking of Yankees, and this is something that I like to see And at first, I thought about this. I said, wow, I wonder why they're doing this. But it makes total sense. 
For Major League Baseball to celebrate Lou Gehrig on June 2nd, this coming year and years moving forward. Lou Gehrig, also known as the Iron Horse, we don't even have to get into what he had done on the field. He's an all-time great, ranked number one first baseman of all time, and how could you not? All you got to do is just look at the numbers, go to baseballreference.com, and you're going to see. The guy just, I mean, he's from another planet when you look at baseball players. But for them to recognize, and June 2nd was the day he passed away in 1941, as everybody who knows the story, had ALS, which is a disease famously known as Lou Gehrig's disease, which is an illness, a neuromuscular illness that's incurable. And it's crazy because you would think that you're 100% healthy, but because you don't have the energy, you start to lose your skills, your motor skills just become depleted until you expire. And to think that was... 1939 when he retired, and I'll get into that in a second. But here it is, 80 plus years later, and there's still no cure for it. And even though you may be perfectly fine, you may be able to stand up from time to time, and you're breathing perfectly, but you just start to wilt away. And you just don't have the strength or the motor skills to make it through the course of a day. So not only do they want to make June 2nd a day to raise awareness for ALS, but everything that Lou Gehrig stood for. And as I mentioned, the famous speech, July 4th, 1939, where right behind home plate, had one of the great speeches of all time. As we all know, today I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. And for Major League Baseball to bring this up now, and it's interesting because... June 2nd, 1941, here will be the 80th anniversary of his death when they first start to celebrate this day. But it's also good because it connects with baseball's past. For them to do that, I think it's not only about time, but it makes 1,000% sense. Because when you think of players of yesteryear, and Gehrig was well before my time, but there's no connection. You do not have that Pension for wanting to know who Lou Gehrig is or Babe Ruth or Ted Williams or Hank Greenberg. Uh, go down the list of all the great players. Because unfortunately in this day and age, everybody's prisoners of the moment. So when the young kid looks at who are the game's greatest players, they're going to look at Barry Bonds, Alex Rodriguez, Ken Griffey Jr. They're going to look at those guys. They're not going to think of even Frank Robinson, Willie Mays. We're talking about guys that have played well before that and I think this is great for baseball to do because as we know baseball is slowly but surely falling off the map as far as popularity as far as just a younger fan wanting to follow baseball because there are so many other things to do gaming more kids are into the NFL or the NBA that to have this bridge for the older player or the player that was back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and even 50s, for them to have a day like this recognizes the past. And it makes you think, will they do this for other players moving forward? Because as we all know, they have the Jackie Robinson Day, and rightfully so. Most recently, they've had a Roberto Clemente Day in September. And now, we're looking at a Lou Gehrig Day. So are we going to look at a Ted Williams Day? And Ted Williams was a little bit of a curmudgeon, and I say that nicely, but... 
we all know Ted Williams and the back of his baseball card and what he did for the game of baseball. Will there be a Joe DiMaggio day? Will there be Babe Ruth, etc.? Babe Ruth, we all know his legend. Beers and hot dog were his diet. He didn't forget about lifting weights. The guy was not only legendary, but he was a folk hero. He was larger than life. Babe Ruth. So I like what baseball's done there, and hopefully, maybe they will do so with some of the other players of yesteryear as well. So that's what we have there with the baseball. All right, now let me quickly sweep through these next three things to take you home here before we bid adieu. The NFL opening business next Wednesday kicks off, and even though you've had some players move here over the last week, whether your name is J.J. Watt signing a two-year deal with the Arizona Cardinals, which came to a little bit of surprise in some circles where a lot of people thought he may go to Cleveland or maybe even Kansas City for that matter, a team that looks like they were going to be close to winning a championship or another championship if you're Kansas City. But for the Cardinals to be the winner here, a little bit of a surprise. I think there's still a few players away. Who knows? Maybe J.J. Watt knows something that I don't. He reunites there with DeAndre Hopkins, so we'll see how that uh, shakes down. You've also had some players released here. Kyle Van Noy, surprise, down in Miami, considering... He pretty much came down there because of the coach, Brian Flores, the former Patriots, the defensive coordinator. So he's gone after signing, I believe, a five-year deal. But after the first year, he becomes a cap casualty. Kyle Rudolph, a 10-year vet with the Vikings. He's on the street looking for a place to rest and maybe try to reach Super Bowl heights himself, considering he's been in the league for a decade. Desmond Trufant, released from Detroit cornerback there for the Lions also Alex Smith being released and in a GQ interview which this was a couple weeks ago I didn't bring this up last week but for him to come out and say that he felt in his heart of hearts that the team didn't want him there that they didn't want to give him a chance or have him be on the roster hey listen that's his gut that's what I'm sure he probably felt and maybe to this day he still feels that it was more of a reluctance to keep him on the roster considering his journey after that horrific leg injury And then for him to even start six games and win five of them in the process. And listen, we know that the NFC East was a disaster last year. Seven and nine won in the division. Got a home game where Tyler Henneke was the guy who started the game, not Alex Smith. Maybe that was also indicative of not wanting to give the job to Alex Smith. I'm sure they'll refute that and they'll say, oh, we're more concerned about his health, blah, blah, blah. But we'll never know especially coming from the higher-ups there in Washington. But we'll see if Alex Smith could get on a roster, you would think, based on what he did this year and with a team that underperformed, even though they made the postseason, you would think he's going to get an opportunity somewhere next year. And then you have Ben Roethlisberger, who his deal was reworked, $14 million salary this year. No surprise, he wasn't going to go anywhere. They made sure they took care of that quick, fast, in a hurry. So now, with that reduction of salary, that will save them $15 million against the cap. So now the Steelers have some money to work with whether they want to re-sign Juju Smith-Schuster, which chances are they may not do so, but they got a guy there in TJ Watt that they need to re-sign, and then you want to throw in Bud Dupree. If he's going to be franchised again, I don't think that'll be the case, but at least Pittsburgh has a little bit of flexibility going into the offseason, so we will see how that goes. I'm going to turn my attention to golf real quick for this reason. 
We're now a month away from the Masters. And over the weekend, you had the Arnold Palmer Invitational where Bryson DeChambeau wins over Lee Westwood. And boy, Lee Westwood, he can't get a break. He's a guy that is probably at the top or near the top of best player never to win a major. And granted that the Arnold Palmer Invitational is not a major, but it's a good tune-up leading to the Masters, which again, is still four weeks away. But for DeChambeau, and we all know about his bravado and hitting the ball to tee nine miles, he ends up winning. So you wonder if this is going to have him pick up a little steam as he heads to the Masters, where a lot of people thought because of COVID, where they had to postpone it until right before Thanksgiving. DeChambeau, will there be a little steam picking up as we get closer and closer to the Masters? Well, he did so yesterday and in pretty, I'm not going to say convincing fashion, but being that he only won the tournament by one stroke, but something just to keep an eye on if this is going to be the calm before the storm, so to speak, when it comes to Mr. DeChambeau. And then lastly, and I saved the best for last, today is a very significant date in the history of sports. And as I said earlier, when it came to Mark Pavlich and him being a part of the 1980 Olympic team, to me, when you look at sporting events in the 20th century, and maybe just overall, because here in the 21st century, off the top of my head, has there been a sporting event that has been wow, that you just had to go crazy about? Two come off the top of my head right away. Obviously, the Patriots undefeated season, getting derailed there in Super Bowl 42 against the Giants, which that could be the number one when you think about it. And then you want to look at Tiger winning the Masters a couple years back? That could also be up there. But does it even come close or reach the magnitude of what took place in Madison Square Garden 50 years ago today between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier? And boxing, as I've said time after time after time, is the one sport that to me, It is not even hanging by a thread as far as a spectator goes. It is non-existent. And that's not to knock boxing overall. I know that there's some fighters out there. I get it. But it does not have the same fervor, panache, whatever adjective you want to use to describe the sport than when it once was. And when you had Ali and Frazier, two undefeated fighters, go into that ring 15 rounds where Joe Frazier was the first person to beat Muhammad Ali and the hype leading up to that fight for roughly two and a half months, the fight itself, and then afterwards how it's pretty much stood the test of time that here it is 50 years to the day to when the fight took place that you're going to see a lot of features on this today. If you haven't already seen Features And I get that once this is put out after a few days, it's going to be perishable. Nobody's going to remember about the fight, so on and so forth. But to have those two guys and for everything that was happening in the country at that time and for the way Ali treated Frazier, Ali was the, at that time, the guy that went against the grain, the guy that wasn't going to conform. We know Ali's story to where Joe Frazier was pretty much the white fighter in a black man's body all the things that were thrown at his way and Ali throwing at him and even after the fact when they fought twice in 74 and in 75, the famed thriller Manila. But the magnitude of that fight, and mind you, I was going to turn two later that month in that year. So I have zero recollection of this fight. But loving sports the way I do and knowing 
what that fight meant to not only just that sport, but what it meant to the sports landscape. That here it is 50 years later, a heavyweight fight, which was one of the biggest, just when you hear heavyweight title of the world, when it came to boxing, everybody was drawn to it. I mean, just think about it over the years. Even going pre-Ali Frazier, whether your name is Joe Lewis, whether your name is Rocky Marciano, whether your name is Muhammad Ali, prior to that Cassius Clay, Joe Frazier, George Foreman, uh, go on down the list. Heavyweight champion of the world. That was where the sports world stopped. Because no matter what you were doing on a Saturday night, you were going to try to tune into that fight, whether in a movie theater, closed circuit, or later on, HBO, pay-per-view, etc. That today is a far cry from what we've seen back in the day. I couldn't even tell you who the heavyweight champion is right now. Is it Anthony Joshua? I know the kid, John Ruiz, won that one time. Well, it's a joke. I don't even know. Tyson Fury, is he a heavyweight? Again, that's how disconnected I am with the sport. But then when you flip that around and talk about its heyday and talk about the buildup and you talk about the anticipation, two legendary fighters and how that fight unfolded and then what proceeded with Ali Frazier 2 and Ali Frazier Three, which didn't match up to the first one. But still, I would have to say, if it's not one of the top two or three sporting events of all time, it's number one. And you could argue that. Because it has to encapsulate everything. And people could say, Jay Reels, oh, come on, there had to be a Super Bowl that was better or a World Series. Hey, what about Pats and Giants? The thing with Pats Giants, they played in the regular season, the final game, and where the Giants lost. And yes, that's what adds a little bit to that story that they did play and it was late in the season and here they were six weeks later beating them in a Super Bowl. But at the same time, the Giants were 10-6. and six. You know, it wasn't as if the Pats were 18-0 and the Giants were 18-0 and or let's say 17-1 and going into that game. There were a lot of people that thought the Pats were going to blow them out of the building. And I'll never forget, in doing my old radio show at the point, I predicted... New England 41, Giants 24. Shows you how wrong I was. But when you have that type of fight of that magnitude, or when you have that spectacle, that sporting event with all of that buildup, and then it was more than what you've ever expected and more that was as advertised, and then for to have the legacy that it's had to this day, there's no other sporting event that can match that. And today we celebrate that. And it's too bad that both... Jolton Joel Frazier and Muhammad Ali are long gone. But they'll be remembered forever. And it all starts with that fight. Madison Square Garden, the venue, world's most famous arena, March 8th, 1971. All right, so let's wrap up here. My hero in Zero of the Week. My hero of the week is Maya Chaka. You're wondering, who the hell is Maya Chaka? Well, you're going to know who she is because she will be the first black woman to officiate in an NFL game this upcoming season. She's going to join Sarah Thomas, who, if you remember, was part of the crew in Super Bowl 55 just last month. That maybe somewhere down the road, she'll be a part of a Super Bowl. And may she have plenty of success in the league. I get that it was the NFL that hired Maya Chaka. We could say, oh, the NFL are heroes. Uh-uh. I'm not going to give the NFL credit. Yes, were they a part of her being 
a member of the NFL officials in the league? Of course. Obviously, they had to endorse that. They had to sign off on it, etc. But it's all about Maya Chaka. Give her her due. She is my hero of the week. And my zero of the week is Creighton's men's basketball coach, Greg McDermott, for using racially insensitive comments toward his team after a tough loss to Xavier, I believe it was a week ago Saturday, saying that he needs, and I quote, not only does he need to have everyone stick together, but he needs everyone to stay on the plantation. I can't have anybody leave the plantation. As you all know, that can't be said here in 2021. And he did apologize. He was very contrite, held himself accountable in a relatively timely fashion. It wasn't anything that he swept under the rug or had some blank statement that he came out or some disingenuous statement in regards to that. And even to this day, some of the players on the team have been affected by it, which who knows what that means for Creighton as they try to get themselves into the tournament, etc. And even for all the apologies and him being contrite, it certainly doesn't make it right for him to say what he said. He should have known better despite being in the heat of the moment. So, Greg McDermott, you are my zero of the week. So that will wrap up episode 183. And guess what, people? I may have another one in store come Thursday. Now, I can't confirm right now because the interview has not taken place. It's going to take place tomorrow. But barring any type of mishap or any emergency, you will have me here again Thursday as we're going to piggyback off of some of the NBA comments that I said with two-time guest of the podcast in Sirius XM NBA Radio, the Bottom Line Sports Show's Gerald Brown will join me. We'll recap the first half, talk about some of the issues with the officiating and, of course, the final two minutes of these games, which are interminable, as I said earlier, and also get his thoughts on the second half of the season as we head into May, June, and July and who he thinks will be representing the East and Western Conference in an NBA final. So we'll revisit with him. We'll also talk a little bit about a podcast that he does on YouTube called Let's Get Technical with Rashid Wallace and Bonzi Wells. They were teammates on the Portland Trailblazers back in the day. We'll get into that. And he's also a huge Buccaneer fan, so I'm sure he's still beaming after the Bucks win last month against the Kansas City Chiefs. So we'll talk about all that on the next podcast, which will air on Thursday. But if you want to be sure for me to confirm that, you could go to all of my social media accounts to see the latest and greatest of what happens with the podcast. So if you want to do so, all you got to do is just check me out on Instagram at JReels or the JReels Podcast. On Twitter, JReels1, just a number. Facebook, the fan page, JReels Podcast. And if you want to send me a DM or even an email, you could do so at the JReels Podcast at gmail.com. And also, can't forget this, people. If you like what you've heard, if you like what you've listened to over the course of the last couple of weeks, as I've had some very interesting guests, former NFL player, Pittsburgh Steelers, two-time All-American Tyrone Carter joined me a couple of weeks ago, as well as CBS Sports behind the scenes there with the NFL Sundays and the Super Bowl with Lauren Correa Sikoriak. Very insightful interviews with those two individuals. You can go back in the archives and check that on jreels.com. Or if you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, you know the deal. All that's going to do is increase the visibility of this podcast. As I said at the outset, I'm trying to get more of these guests to come on to share their experience with you guys. So, The more you subscribe, rate, review, spread the word, share with everybody that's the sports fan in your life, again, 
It's going to generate more interest with those outside who aren't familiar with this podcast so I could get the former or current athlete, the blogger, sports writer, studio, technical director, studio host, you name it. I want to have them on to share that with me so you can listen to what they have to say, whether they played between the white lines or was behind the seats in the broadcast booth or in the press box, you name it. I want to have it all for you here as we start year three, or really year four, I should say. Excuse me, we already... Closed out year three, year four of the J Reels podcast. And for those who don't know, you're about to know. First time, 10th time, 100th time, or if you listen to all 183 episodes, people, this is in the blood. This is what I love to do. Sports, it's in my DNA. I love talking about it. I love sharing my thoughts, opinions, analysis to entertain and inform you guys on everything that's happening on the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.